Welcome to Women Read Scripture. My name is Mariana Richardson. And I'm Christine Thackeray. And I'm Julie Danes. And Julie, we are so excited to have you here with us today. Do you want Thanks to tell having me. a little bit about yourself? I am a mother of four children, and I am an author of historical fiction and romance books. Well, we Clean. are... Clean. Oh, no, that's important. <laughs> Just want to make sure that's clean. <laughs> we are so glad that you're here so with I us today. say she's not naughty. I, I also <laughs> want to say, too, that, that you are also a scriptorian in your own right. You really, you love the scriptures. I and, love the scriptures. And that's the most important thing in this discussion. Well, today we're going to be talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And actually, we get to do it for two weeks, which I'm so excited because I love the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to just start with a discussion of what are your favorite parts of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I have to say that my favorite part of the Sermon on the Mount, and although this may sound cliche, is just the Beatitudes. I feel like they are just such an outline of what it means to be Christ-like. It's so simple and so clear and so full of charity and love and humility. I just really love the Beatitudes. Well, thank you. And the one that got me this time is the Lord's Prayer, that we think we know it, but there's so many layers that I hadn't seen before I looked at it closely. So it really impressed me that I need to follow that pattern better. I need to start giving grown-up prayers. Grown-up prayers. (laughs) I like it. You know, one thought, and I know we're going to be discussing this more at the end, but was the idea of perfection. And the reason why I was thinking about that is... All too often, people don't understand what perfection is. They think that means that everything I do, everything I touch is golden, everything that I do is perfect in our worldly view of perfection. And I can't wait for the discussion that we're going to have about what perfection means from the Lord and from our Heavenly Father. Starting out with that, I did want to just kind of begin with some background on what happened before the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we were supposed to read Luke chapter 9, and it's interesting, we have three accounts of the Sermon on the Mount. We have the one in Luke 9, we have the one in Matthew 5, you know, 6 and 7, but then we also have the one in 3 Nephi. And so what I did was I looked at all of those chapters and said, okay, so what happened just before the Sermon on the Mount was given? So if we turn to Luke chapter 9, and I'm sorry, I'm saying 9 and it's 6. I guess my dyslexia is is (laughs) flipping flipping that number 6 into a 9. I'm saying Luke chapter 6. And in Luke chapter 6, just at the end, we're going to read verses 9 through 11. Luke says this, and this is all happening just before, you know, his version of the Sermon on the Mount. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask one thing. Now understand, this is the Sabbath day kind of that he's talking about. And so basically, um, he is healing people. His apostles had just picked some corn out of the field. And the, the Pharisees are not happy because basically he's doing things that they aren't supposed to do on the Sabbath day. And so he says, so the Lord is asking them a question you know, is it right for Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, 
this is the man with the shriveled hand, Mm -hmm. stretch forth thy hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And this is the part that I find fascinating. And they, meaning the Pharisees, were filled with madness and commune one another what they might do to Jesus. Then it goes on and talks about how the Savior, you know, called the twelve, and then he goes about healing people. And he says, and the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him, and he healed them all. So all of these things are happening during this time where he first teaches his apostles and tries to teach the Pharisees of the importance of the Sabbath. And then after that, he heals the people and realize that when we're talking the Sermon on the Mount, the Pharisees, to our knowledge, would not have been there. Instead, it was his disciples. It was those that were following him. And they went up, and if you've been there where they think you know, the Sermon on the Mount happened— I just can envision the Savior on these beautiful rolling hills, you know, up at the top, where I'm sure that his voice would be able to carry to a multitude. But these were his disciples. These were his followers. And, you know, they had been prepared by understanding what the Sabbath day was, and this healing happened. Well, then if we turn to Matthew and see what happened just before, we also have kind of a similar you know, a way of looking at this in that at the end of Matthew 4, it says, and Jesus went about all Galilee. This is verses 23 to 24 and also 25, but I'm not going to read it all. Um, Teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel. And then it goes on, he says, and his fame went throughout all Syria. They brought all their sick people. He's healing everybody. And then, and there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee. And then it goes straight into the Sermon on the Mount. And from the Decapolis. And the Decapolis were the 10 cities that follow the, um, like, King's Highway, the trade routes. Right. That were mostly not Jews. And so it wasn't just the Jewish people. It was many people that were in that area, which is interesting. And they were all people who listened and loved the Savior's right. teaching. And no wonder it made the Pharisees mad when they were outdone by this guy. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah, their following is much better. So no wonder they were mad. Yes, they just couldn't keep were... up with Christ. And, and I love that greatness. madness. You know, yeah. it wasn't yeah. just a little mad. It was really mad. But then if we turn to Third Nephi, we also have this, this similar beginning part, but it's even more dramatic because here it's Third Nephi, chapter 11, which we know is the doctrine of Christ, where that's being taught, but where the Savior actually, can you imagine the, that dramatic event of him coming down to Bountiful yeah. and having everyone come and feel his hands, and then he calls the 12 that are going to be his apostles there. So it, is the it that first day when he gives this sermon? Because then the right next day they go out and call all the other people. But the sermon is given only to those people that felt inspired to be at the temple. At that So there time. was a calling. Right. So it's interesting because this one in Luke 
it says the multitudes are following him, but they go off with the disciples. It's not the multitudes. It's not everyone. It's just his closest followers. And the same thing happens right. where there's a sifting that this is only for the truly the, faithful. The true disciples of the wow. Savior. And it's interesting. The other thing that I thought was, was fascinating about this is I looked what happened just before is there was preparation that the Savior actually did for the people before he gave them the Sermon on the Mount. And that was a little bit of a ha moment for me because I think now of the Sermon on the Mount similar to, you know, our general conference talk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where it he was giving them a general conference talk, but even more because it was the Savior himself. But we have a prophet of the Lord who also teaches us at general conference. Yeah. Interesting. So my question for you is how do you prepare for general conference. I mean, obviously the Savior was preparing people for this very important sermon that he was teaching them about this higher law. You know, they were all very focused on the Mosaic law and he's gonna teach them something even more. And so he had to prepare them for that more. And so as we prepare for general conference, for that more that we get at general conference, what are some of the things that you do individually and as a family to prepare? Yeah, I feel like, you know, the, the, as the scriptures have taught us, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And so you've just got to train yourself to be in tune, to hear the promptings of the Spirit, to understand what of each talk is speaking to you, to your heart, because it's different for everyone, right? We all come away from General Conference with something that was so meaningful to just us personally. And we can only do that if we have prepared ourselves and opened our hearts and ears to hear what the Lord is trying to tell us in our lives. So maybe scripture reading, obviously temple, keeping your covenants, anything that brings you closer to the Spirit. Well, I know my husband is really good at this, so it's not me, but it's him. But he always listens to the previous conference talk before that's a good so idea that is. in his mind and then i've heard it said that you should ask a question that you're struggling with right. so that the answer comes through there but um i love the idea as you're saying that now i'm going to start like going to the temple right before conference so that you have that moment to really focus so i love that idea and i'm going to start it this next time. <laughs> well, and going along with that, the thought that came into my mind was the healing that happened before. And so sometimes we need to heal. And that means getting rid of those sins, those healing from the world, because basically that's what the Savior was doing. He was healing physically and spiritually before he actually gave the Sermon okay. on the Mount. And the Beatitudes are all about healing. Exactly. That's what they are. Exactly. And so he starts with the concept of healing our right. own souls. Well, wow. when he went to the Nephites, there was a little bit before he appeared to them, he there heals. was a little bit of heal. trauma that happened in the land, oh, a right? Bit, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and a so, trauma. you know, just imagine the glory of this oh. peaceful man coming and healing the congregation. Preparing them amazing. for this. And, and that's the reason why I think it's powerful to think about, because these were the disciples that were hearing this. These were the faithful that were coming and hearing these words. And yet, notice how many times we have them. We have them three times. Now, the other thing that I want to talk about just quickly, and I brought my big, heavy book. 
Um, <laughs> but I did want to just make a comment about Jesus the Christ as we continue this study, that we do have this also as a part of our study. And there is such a wealth of information here in terms of as we talk about some of the concepts that we're going to be discussing, especially I was rereading all the section in here by James E. Talmadge about the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. And so enlightening, so, so helping me to understand the scriptures even better. And so I did want to just make that wonderful comment about this fabulous book, even though it's really, really heavy. <laughs> it's something that... Um, for me, has just helped my own study as we've gone through this New Testament. And we were going to talk a little bit about how, I know last time we had a question because we had quoted Alfred Edersheim. And in quoting him, people were curious who that was. And so, um, and his connection to Jesus the Christ is fascinating. All right. Well, I'll bring out my heavy book again. <laughs> I will say this, if you go back, because I even marked this, if you... This is just an example of Edersheim and Jesus the Christ. But if you go to chapter 15, which is the chapter about the Sabbath, and we were talking about what happened in John 6 at mm -hmm. the very beginning when he talks about the Sabbath. And so um, James E. Talmadge does this. But if you look at the footnotes, I mean, the footnotes at the end of each chapter was like my favorite part of each one. And he does quote Edersheim, if you look at the fourth footnote on the 15th mm -hmm. chapter, and he basically quotes him about the thoughts of the, the Jews on the Sabbath and the way that they, they saw the Sabbath day. But over and over again on the notes of the chapters, you're going to see Edersheim's name just used very often because James E. Talmadge also loved the words of Edersheim and would quote him frequently. Hmm. Also, Bruce R. McConkie would also, in the Mortal Messiah series that he wrote, Oftentimes, actually, in a couple of, he took full pages right. of Edersheim and just quoted them right. in and his work. And source document. So as we look at that using Edersheim. So you'll see, I, I love Edersheim, and so you'll hear me quoting right. him often during our time in our study together. Right. Um, I did want to just make one other comment, though, about the Beatitudes before we continue in terms of the name, Beatitudes. I mean, because you're kind of like, okay. How did they get that name? That doesn't make sense because we're doing blessed are, blessed mm -hmm. are, blessed are. And realize in the Latin Vulgate, when the priests would read in Latin, the blessed are would be beyond suti. So it sounds like beatitudes. And beatitudes. So, <laughs> and so that's how the beatitudes got their name was because of the blessed you know, blessed are, yeah. and it sounds like Beatitudes. And so that's how yeah. Beatitudes got their name. I mean, when I was a kid, I always learned that little, it's the attitude of how to oh. be, the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. I like that even better <laughs> than, the, than the Latin. I know. Way to be. I did want to just share, though, um, uh, in terms of in the third Nephi version, we have some new Beatitudes. No, when, when you look at the Matthew 5, you know, Beatitudes, there are nine. And then when you look at the, the Luke chapter 6 Beatitudes, there's four. I want to just point out there is one other Beatitude in the New Testament, and that's found in John. But in 3 Nephi 12, 
we have a couple of additional beatitudes, you know, blessed are, that happen right at the first and second verses of chapter 12. And for me, it's interesting to see these as kind of precursors to the Beatitudes that we're going to be talking about that are found in, in Matthew 5. Hmm. So if you if you just look at 12, verse 1, and I'm just going to start at blessed are ye, because that's our Beatitude, blessed are ye if ye shall give heed unto the words of these 12 whom I have chosen from among you to minister unto you and to be your servants. Okay, and conference talk. Thank conference you. Conference talk. <laughs> so blessed are ye if you listen at conference. And unto them I have given power that they may baptize you with water. And after that you are baptized with water, behold, I will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Therefore, blessed are ye if ye shall believe in me and be baptized. After that you have seen me and know that I am. For me, this is so powerful because, you know, as as missionaries, we know that Third Nephi chapter eleven is the gospel of Christ. Right. And when we think about the gospel of Christ, basically here is the first beatitudes: is blessed are ye if you live the gospel of Christ. Blessed are ye if you listen to the apostles, listen to general conference. He goes on and he says, and again, more blessed are ye, and this one is interesting, more blessed are ye, that are they who shall believe in your words, because you shall testify that ye have seen me, and that ye know that I am. Yea, blessed are they who shall believe in your words, and come down into the depths of humility, and basically live the doctrine of Christ. And for me, that's a really interesting progression, because He's saying, okay, apostles, because he had just called them and taught them how to baptize. And now he's saying, blessed are those who listen to your words and are baptized. And he even used this fact that, you know, that they're even almost more blessed Right. Than those that hear from. But I do think that you have to remember there's just this small group that felt inspired to come to the temple. So they're going to be the ones that are going to go out and tell people. And teach everybody else. So they are the very seed. And it is a gift of the Spirit, right? To be able to hear somebody else's testimony and believe. That's true. Exactly. Exactly. Well, for me, that's kind of powerful to think about those new Beatitudes before we start really talking about the ones that we know extremely well because they're found in Matthew 5, and that's, you know, we've been memorizing those since we were in primary about the Beatitudes, (laughs) especially the one, blessed be the peacemakers. I mean, I know my, you know, our our mother would, you know, talk about (laughs) being a peacemaker, how important it was to be a peacemaker. It's kind of like when people sing Love at Home, and you just are like, no, I don't need that. But, um, well, anyway, I did want to start with um, the word blessed, and I wish Annette were here because she could say it's so pretty. I know. She the has word the blessed Hebrew. is, and it's it's spelled Asher, but it's Asher. Somehow, some but fancy the, French. You the guttural. Oh, the asher. Asher. I don't there. know. There's something Christian yeah, in it. You have to get the But guttural. anyway, and it means, oh, the happiness of one who is. So, oh, the happiness of one who is in spirit. And so in the Come Follow Me manual, it talks about happiness. And that's because the term blessed 
really means that this will make you happy. But as we talked about um, Alfred Edersheim, one of the things that he pointed out was the initial state and the ultimate blessing aren't a natural connection to each other, that it has to be through Christ. And it's so cute that he wrote that in the 1840s without ever having read the Book of Mormon because in the Book of Mormon, it says, blessed are the poor in heart who come unto Christ for they shall, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I thought that was so interesting that he got it just through the spirit, what we have through Revelation. So that was kind of You know, I do want to make a comment when we talk about these three versions of the Beatitudes. It is really fun just to take your your pen and your scriptures and mark the differences between the three because there are differences. And even the Joseph Smith translation translation on the bottom adds little pieces. Little pieces that aren't in the other one. It is fascinating. Um, But the thing I wanted to cover that's a little bit different is the 12 steps. And I don't know how many people have been connected to the 12 steps or heard about them, but the connection between the 12 steps and the Beatitudes is amazingly similar. Well, explain what what 12 steps you're talking about. So the 12 steps is is the addiction um, recovery recovery program. And the church uses the 12 steps, but um, Alcoholics Anonymous started in the 1930s. Bill Wilson was an alcoholic who was just a really good, like really through the Lord tried to, well, overcame his addiction through conversion, but he wasn't connected to any individual church. And through his experience, and he said through true inspiration, he came up with these 12 steps of how to free himself of his addiction. But when you put them against the Beatitudes, they follow the same progression. And so I wanted to show how inspired they were. He didn't look at the Beatitudes and then create the 12 steps from it. He created it from experience and inspiration. But just like how Alfred Edersheim came up with the same that thing that was in the Book of Mormon, right. that that all truth can become to different ways if we use yeah. the Spirit. And I, I really agree. believe they were so inspired. So instead of doing the thing, I'm going to add this 12-step because they right, are a miracle. They are a gift, and they're there in the Beatitudes. So hmm. we're going to start and just go through the Beatitudes quickly. Tell me if you get bored. All right, I will. <laughs> she will. <laughs> so, That's okay. So um, the first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this idea of poor in spirit is really key because it's the idea that we have found something lacking in our spirit, something that stands in the way that's missing. And of the 12 steps, there are three that apply to this. First, we admit we are powerless over our addiction. Second, that we believe there's a power greater than ourselves that can help us. And third, that we're willing to turn our lives over to his will. And so that's the same idea as us feeling poor in spirit. And it may not be an addiction. It may just be something we're trying to overcome. The, the closer we get to the Lord, the more we see the potholes in our lives that need to be filled up. Yeah. So the next one is blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. And as a child, you always think that's about death, but it's really about burying the natural man or a piece of him anyway, like mourning that sin. And I, and I giggled and I was talking to my daughter and said, you know the difference when you're raising teenagers between godly sorrow and the sorrow of being caught? 
You oh. know that? Like, <laughs> Oh, I hear that all the time. You know, you get pulled over for speeding. Are you mad because you got caught or because you were speeding? You know, and usually it's right. Usually it's the other. I know. But it was funny because my daughter, who only has toddlers, says at the age of four, you know that difference when it's too quiet and you go back and you're like, what are you doing? Yeah. And they're like, oh, sorry, mom. And they're like, you're not, you're sorry. not sorry. The minute I don't look, you'll do it right? again. <laughs> right. So, um, but that true godly sorrow. And so in the 12-step program, it's make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself, really looking and letting go of the things that you've kind of closed your eyes to and emotionally feeling that sorrow. And so... Uh, the next one is, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And Elder Bednar gave an awesome talk on being oh, meek and lowly of heart. It was an awesome talk. Do you remember that? I and, do remember that. And in it, he talked about learning both from the Holy Ghost and being meek was to learn from people who seem less capable, experienced, or educated than yourself. Yeah. And so I thought that was fascinating because the... the um, Oh, my mind is blank. The 12th step, the fifth one is admit to God, to yourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of your wrongs. So this, isn't that fascinating that they're both so similar that part of being meek is being willing to show other people as well as yourself and listening to the Spirit about your issues. And so as you're trying to clean up, having that meekness to truly confess um, next one is blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they should be filled. And in 35, it says with the Holy Ghost. And right. so it's the spirit that guides you and you really want it. And it's cute because the, I say cute, but the uh, 12 steps are you're entirely ready to have God remove the defects of your character. You've, you've mourned and buried that natural man. And then humbly you ask him. And so you're hungering and thirsting. And I don't know if you've ever had those kind of prayers where you need something so badly that you just hunger. And it's so interesting because I was thinking about my greatest answered prayer was um, my husband was traveling two weeks out of town and then would come home two weeks with an implementation for a defense project. And I had just little toddlers and um, there was only one set of keys to the car. And it was the first day he had left and he was going to be gone for two weeks. And I couldn't find the keys anywhere. And I remember praying so hard. It was like one of my greatest prayers. Please show me where the keys were. And I could have called a, a locksmith, locksmith, but they lived far away because yeah. we lived kind of out in the country. And it would have been just so much. And I was just like, please, please. And I just remember the Lord answering that prayer. And I stood up and I walked out to the sandbox and I, uh, and I saw a lid, a pot lid, and I lifted it, and it wasn't there. And I'm like, what? And I heard the Lord say, dig. And I started to <laughs> dig in the sand. And I dug down almost a so foot. So a child must have taken them? Marcus. And, oh, <laughs> Remember, Marcus my is word. my solid, oh, very yeah. crazy teenager. I mean, he was a toddler at the he time. He was but, just a baby. Yeah, but he, but was he a, could bury yeah, it deep, it I'm was sure. Deep. And I, I couldn't believe I That's found funny. them. But I remember that prayer 
was the hunger and thirst. And if we have that kind of desperation. Yeah, that sounds desperate. Right, it was, it was desperate. desperate times. But the Lord answered it. So anyway, the next one is blessed are the merciful. And merciful is all about forgiveness. Right. And I love that Elder Uchtdorf, of all people, would say this. Having mercy is all about forgiveness. Of all the people in the world, the one who is hardest to forgive is the person looking back in the mirror, oh, is ourselves. I but I love the um, the 12 step because it's number eight, make a list of all persons we've harmed and become willing to make amends to them. And as we go out and try and heal the people that we have hurt, it's way easier to forgive ourselves. And I think that idea of actively doing something good for other people as a way to forgive yourself and lift yourself is part of this showing mercy. And then it you... It takes your mind off your own problems right. and your own... Sometimes dwelling too hard on our right. own self and our own problems instead of serving and looking how we can help other people is not healthy. Right. Absolutely. And then um, blessed are the peacemakers. The one was to be willing and peacemakers is to go out and do it. And you make a difference in the world. And, and I think that's part of the same one. And then... Um, I, President Nelson said, peace can prevail only when the natural indication to fight is superseded by the self-determination to live on a loftier level. And I love that idea that we bring ourselves to this loftier level as we've tried to lift ourselves, and then we share it with others. And then, of course, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We take a personal inventory, and um, we, uh, when we make a wrong choice, we admit it. And then through prayer meditation, we consistently talk to God and try and do what he asks us to and live by those things. Mm -hmm. And I love that blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Yep. And Zion is the pure, the pure in heart. heart. Yeah. And the big thing about the pure in heart as we ourselves try to be pure is I think of, of taking a bath. And if you've ever felt really clean, how long does that last? Not very long. Not very long. Maybe <laughs> a day in a crazy day. And so that consistent inventory that we retake an inventory and relook at our lives and allow ourselves weekly to take the sacrament mm -hmm. for that cleanliness and re-clean um, ourselves. And the last of the Beatitudes and the last of the 12 steps that we're at is blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness sake. And then Christ even says, and blessed are you when you're persecuted. Right. And the last is having had this spiritual awakening, you go out and reach to others. And the minute you do, the ones who don't want to listen, what are they going to do? They're going to persecute you. <laughs> exactly. And so that, do you see how they just go right hand in no, hand? No, that's fascinating. And it's a process. I had never, I've never seen that before. And I think a lot of people that don't feel they have an addiction, I'm very addicted to many things, but um, but so I love these twelve steps, and they really do help. Well, but the don't you think we're in a uh, the same thing? You know, a society that kind of breeds these addictions. I mean, yes, we talk about alcoholism and drugs and pornography and all these other things, but I think. All of us can think of little things that we need I to know. get rid of in Social our lives. Social media, binge be, watching. Right. right. And maybe the word isn't always addiction. It can just be habits that are right. hard to change. Exactly. You know, I really feel like changing ourselves is one of the hardest things that we ever do. I agree. Absolutely. I did want to share. I, yes, I brought all my books. I'm definitely a book person, <laughs> as I know all of us are. But um, I love this book. Preach My Gospel, my favorite. 
And I did want to just point out, when we talk about the Beatitudes, these are truly the Christ-like attributes that all of us are trying to, to gain for happiness, you know, eternal happiness. And there's an entire chapter six in Preach My Gospel that's all about Christ-like attributes. Mm -hmm. And basically, it's a lot of these attributes mm -hmm. that are found in the Beatitudes. But I do want to point out there's an attribute activity, which would be really fun for individuals, but also families as a family activity to do, where you're able to actually go through each of these Christ-like attributes and determine how well are you doing? And I think that's very helpful when we talk about the Beatitudes to also kind of have an opportunity to say, all right, this is an attitude of becoming. How am I becoming in terms of these attitudes that I'm supposed to be developing in my life? I love that also, if we use that process of going through and realizing we may not be as charitable or whatever attribute we're going to work on and using that process to try and develop it in our exactly. lives. That is well, and I think it can also be helpful in a positive way because we can look and we can say to ourselves, oh, I think I am doing okay at this. Right. And here's it. another one that I'm pretty good at too. Instead <laughs> of to always beating too. ourselves down, you know, the Lord wants us to also look at the things that we do well and, I agree. and feed them. Yeah. Yes, I love Make them better. Yeah, make them better, but also it's good to acknowledge what the gifts that we're already doing okay at. Nice. I agree. Which would make that activity even more yeah, fun. Yeah, even, even <laughs> We've done better. that. We've done, done that. that. I could do better, but it, it is a oh, good wow. It's a good one. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do that one. We would have our missionaries do them regularly just to help <laughs> very them fun. decide how they're doing, if they're yeah. getting better. Well, I know we're also going to be talking about some of my favorites are the salt of the earth scripture. That is one of my favorite too. I love that one so much. I mean, this is just a whole beautiful section here of scripture, but I do love when he says, ye are the salt of the earth, because um, salt is referenced so many times throughout scripture, and it has such symbolic meaning um, of purity, of it's antiseptic, it preserves, it adds flavor and it's just all throughout the scriptures. Um, so yeah, you are the salt of the earth. But then he goes on to say, if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Well, salt, as I said before, in its own chemical compound is a pure substance. But if it gets contaminated with any kind of other chemical or substance, whether it be soil or whatever then they would throw it out onto the street and it would actually act as um, traction, like on the right. slippery well, muck field. It, like it also builds streets. It's right. like this it snow, also, right? But yeah, it, yeah, exactly. But I was going to say, it also stops things from growing, like Roundup. You yeah. use salt instead, so it, start, it makes the street clean because we, yeah. we've done that at our... A gravel driveway. We had extra salt, and you um, just put this all so it's yeah. Funny, there. it's still not completely you know, useless, but yeah. yeah. No. But anyway, in the Doctrine and Covenants in uh, section one hundred one, it talks about how the people who have made covenants with God are the salt of the earth. And so, who is the salt of the earth? Well, it's all of us who have been baptized, been to the temple, and made covenants with God. It's kind of all of us, um, and there is an Arab phrase I found out that is that is it goes like this there is salt between us 
And it's like a greeting that means we are friends. You know, we are friends. There is salt between us. Um, And then also in the Doctrine and Covenants, in section 103, it says um, that as the salt of the earth, it is our job to be a light. We are a light unto the world and to be the saviors of men. And so... I love that. I keep on thinking, you know, when you um, salt something and, and sometimes you'll get a clump of salt and it's just too much. And I think that it's idea never of never too much salt for me. <laughs> I know. But I us like being the salt too. of the earth, like like spreading out and actually being around people that aren't salted and, and spending more of our time so that right. we truly are a seasoning, not just yeah. a clump of salt of ourselves. Right, oh, the that, savor of that. men, not right. just the savior. Some people think right. that it's meant to be the same thing, but it's not. The savor of men means the flavor and mm-hmm. the spice right. and that little bit of something that can take it up to an elevated and better level. Right, and right. so surrounding yourself oh, like with people that. that aren't that salt and right. allowing you to, yeah. to help elevate them is a beautiful idea. And just like all the blessings that we receive, they're meant to be turned around and given outward, right? And oh, so then God. we become the saviors mm-hmm. of men. Um, I found this quote from John Woodso that says, In our preexistence, we made certain agreements with the Almighty. We agreed to not only be saviors of ourselves, but measurable saviors of the whole human family. And I, I love yeah. this so much because just last Sunday, I was talking to my daughter who was serving a mission in Sweden. Oh, how wonderful. And she said to us, so she has two more transfers left. She's been the oh, she's L- home. Yeah, she's almost home. She's been the LSDL, so she's been working with the mission president mm-hmm. and the APs oh. and traveling around to, to the zone conferences and stuff. But now she's being sent to this little tiny town oh. called Katrina Home. Oh, and pretty name. she's yeah, pretty name. <laughs> she's not super excited about being there, but and I said to her, Well, I'm sure there's a reason that you're gonna be sent there. And she said, oh, I already know what the reason is. And then she told us this story about how she started her mission at a neighboring area from Mm -hmm. Katrina home. And the elders invited her and her mission companion to go to a sweet, sweet sister's house who was really struggling with her testimony and with her faith. And they gave her a blessing. And after the blessing, the missionaries said to this sweet woman, you can, it's okay for you to hug the sisters, right? So she went right up to my daughter, Marin, gave her a big hug. And Marin said to her, um, I have missed you so much. And it was such a sweet moment. And to fully understand that, then I need to tell you that before she went on her mission, after she finished the MTC and before she left to the field, my husband gave her a blessing. And in the blessing, he promised her that she would be able to find people that she had known from the pre-existence. Oh, isn't that And so her whole mission, she has had this little mantra that says, I will find you, I will love you, and I will remember you. Oh, wow. And so right from the beginning, she had this experience, and now she's going back to Katrina home where this sweet sister, sister lives sister. and be able oh, to be with her so again. Pretty. That is so happy. So I just think it's so I neat. I that mantra. Right? I will <laughs> find so you, I will love you, and I will remember, remember you. you. Don't you ever find people that you just know? I do. And in fact, oh, just yeah, sweet. I do. 
That is so I love gorgeous. It. Yeah, I just think that sometimes we forget how connected we are to everyone. And mm-hmm. the if we could see beyond the veil, I think we would be so surprised at the relationships and the covenants and the promises that we made to each other up there. And that all ties back into being the salt of the earth and mm-hmm. to be saviors of men. In my family growing up, anyone who was a great person and a stalwart member of the church, oh, they are the salt of the earth, you know, (laughs) described as being a really great person. So I just loved that little story. And um, Carlos E. Ace said in his conference talk a while back, there should be salt between us and all men. We should extend honor, friendship, and hospitality to all of our brothers and sisters. So I just love this. I love the nature of eternal relationships mm-hmm. and the way that as saviors of men, we can reach out to those people and remember them. That's so funny. I think of that scripture in 2 Nephi 32 that says that we should you know, go forward with the perfect brightness of hope right. and a love of God and of all men. Yeah. And I often think of that when I'm frustrated or don't like someone as much. I think well, we've got to get that love I know. right. And, and I love the fact that you talked about the covenant because it is the covenant that binds us eternally right. with each other. And it's the salt. And so that is the salt that between us, That is the us salt too, between us. That we have wow. this covenant, the yeah. eternal covenants that we make. Yeah. And that kind of goes along with a thought that I had. If we go to Matthew um, 5.17, and that's and for me, the, the interest here is what the Savior says. Because he says, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so we talked, uh, you were mentioning about covenants. What do you think is the difference between destroying the law and fulfilling the law? Well, I think that at this time when Christ appeared to these people in Galilee, especially, and started teaching the things that he was teaching, I feel like in our hearts, these things make sense. You know, this makes sense to us. It speaks to our soul. But to these people who were living a different law, it was kind of radical. It was a radical change and a radical adjustment. And so I think he's trying to explain that he's not trying to destroy everything that they've been living up until now. He's just saying, now let's take this to the next level. It's like, you know, a level up in the video game, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to take this to the next level and see how much better it will be. It's line upon line. You know, we just keep going. I love that. It's sweet. Well, I know you had a great well, story about that. Well, and that same leveling that. up is is just a big deal. I remember um, when I was a child, my mother wouldn't let me go to the library by myself. And it was only a couple blocks away. And it was just all I wanted to do in the world was go to that library on my own. But when I got to be old enough, then I could go. And sometimes we have principles that hold us back because we're not there. And I love your leveling leveling up analogy as we go up to the next level as we're more capable, as they've learned to live this external law, now turning it inside and fulfilling that law and then having behavior be. And so then what the Savior does is he starts teaching them through example and example, example about what that higher law would look like in in a practical way. And I love the way the Savior always kind of gives us practical examples. And especially, I think that he specifically picks those that are the most human examples that we do. And this is the one I like on verse 21. 
You have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall be in, in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever <laughs> shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Wow, those are those are strong, strong. words. It's strong. It's now, true. I also want to say a lot of times people focus on that without a cause and say, well, pff, I'm, I'm I angry. I wish it stopped there I, have, I always I have, a, have a good reason. <laughs> I have a cause, and so it's okay that I'm angry. But realize in the Joseph Smith translation, guess what Joseph Smith did? He took out oh, without a so cause. Oh, that is so mean. So I want you to know that what the Savior really meant to say, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever was so it doesn't matter whether you have a chip on his shoulder. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that is so it doesn't matter whether you have a cause or not, you still cannot be angry. Oh. All right. The other thing that I thought was interesting was when we see the, the raka, that is a word suggesting contempt, derision, and it's in both Aramaic and Greek. So it was something that, boy, it didn't matter what language you used, anybody would have known what raka Okay, is. this All is right. so bad, but the other day, okay, you know I live in Rexburg, and you know I've talked about driving in Rexburg. I had my little granddaughter, my three-year-old granddaughter in the back seat, and I had actually forgot she was there. And I was driving just to the store, and I had said, do you want to come? I'll get you a treat if you come with. So we were driving down the street to the store, and someone cut me off. And I said, oh, what an idiot. And then Uh-oh, I hear, which is cool. Raka. And cool. then in the back I hear, Grandma, what does idiot mean? And I'm like, oh. <laughs> so anyway, I just needed this one. So okay, And it just can't be angry. Just say, I love you. You must be having a hard day. I'm going to have to make excuses for people to get my brain in the place. It's so hard to rein that anger in when we get frustrated and mad. It just is a a reactionary emotion, and it's just so hard. Well, and especially when we think we do have a cause. You know, we, we have a reason. We should be able to be angry. But what the Lord's teaching us is, guess what? You don't. And that was one of the things that President Nelson really focused on, remember? Oh, And he said, I know it's not easy, even if there's a cause to remove conflict from your life. Now, I I want to go to verse 25, because this one I also find is interesting. When it says, agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time thy adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Now, if we look at the Greek of that word agree, because realize, you know, this is a translation, and so, and it's translated from the Greek, but that word agree has a little bit different meaning. It's quickly have kind thoughts for or be well disposed towards. So it's not just saying, you know, um, you know, okay, fine, oh, fine, all right, you know, I'll agree with you, but instead... It's kind thoughts and going the extra mile. And as I read that, I thought, okay, the Lord's really trying to tell us it's all about the heart. It's really all about the way we feel about people, not just the words that we say, but also the feelings inside that we have. It is interesting that he says not agreeing with someone that disagrees with you, but your adversary. 
someone who doesn't want you to, to succeed. And you still have to have kind thoughts against someone who doesn't, like your frenemies. Right. Even exactly. <laughs> even any. people that it's, <laughs> you know, we're not talking just the person that you don't even know, but he still right. you know, runs but you off the road. These are people that are this intentionally is, these don't are people like you. That right. know and it's that so hard. You really have to step back from the situation and analyze it from a distance and understand that they are doing that, but you don't have to respond in the way right. that you immediately feel like you so want you to respond. Yourself right. of that. You just right. have to step back from the situation and look at it from a distance and ask yourself, what is my reaction to this going to do for this relationship. Okay, so Julie, you get a check on that one when you're talking about the attributes. <laughs> well, I, still I need to work on it. <laughs> I, I did want to also just point out, because I do think it's a scripture that we need to bring in, is in Third Nephi, and I'm sorry, my big, big, big print, mm -hmm. it always means that I have to, to flip around. But if we go to the very beginning of the Book of Mormon, you know, Nephi understood Wait, I this. I you were in third Nephi. Are you no, first? I'm in, I'm actually in second Nephi 25. This is at okay. the very end like of Nephi first 25. Nephi's, you know, our very first lovely Nephi from the beginning of the, yeah. the Book of Mormon, where he's talking about this whole thing of the law mm -hmm. and the fulfilling of the law, but that how, even though they look towards, you know, the fulfillment, they know that they have to live, you know, this, this other law. And so he says very specifically, and notwithstanding, we believe in Christ, we keep the law of Moses, and look forward with steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be fulfilled. For for this end was the law given, wherefore the law hath become dead unto us, and we are made alive in Christ because of our faith. Yet we keep the law because of the commandments. And I thought, what a powerful example that Nephi gives us. Sometimes when we are asked to live a law that we kind of go, you know, th this, this law is really bugging me. You know what I'm saying? I, oh, I, know. I, I think I could do, you know, much better without this restriction. And he's saying, look, we look forward to the time when it's fulfilled, but we still keep the law of Moses because that's the commandment. That's what we're supposed to do. Well, and I think it's significant. You talked about the man with the withered hand being blessed or healed. Mm -hmm. And then right after he was healed, Christ said, now go show yourself to the priests and make the sacrifice required of the law. So although he will fulfill the law of Moses, it's not till after his resurrection that he does. And he still encourages them to live by this law. And so I think that's... I completely agree. I did want to bring up one last point as we talk about this higher law. Before he starts talking about the practical aspects of this higher law, if we look at, you know, verse 15 and 16, and actually 14, we'll start with, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I love the fact that he gives that statement before he goes into the practical. You know, basically he says, okay, this, this is the standard, and now I'm going to tell you what the expectation is for this standard. And that's pretty powerful to me. Oh, okay, can I just say, this just like hit me. But you know how... Uh, the Jews went off a lunar calendar 
And so they didn't quite know when the feasts and festivals would be. Right. So they had these mountain forts and they would light up a huge like light, like almost right. a lighthouse on these mountain forts to tell people to come. It's time to come for the Passover, time to come. And so it's interesting because I've often heard that talk about the temple, but also to shine, to tell we them are. to come. Right. And that light on a hill they would have seen mm. when they were called and they dropped everything to come for these beautiful times to turn to the Lord. So I do want to read this quote by Elder B.H. Roberts because I think it kind of puts together these two thoughts of living the higher law and also this being a light to the world and how the two really goes together. He says, the man who so walks in the light and wisdom and power of God will at the last, by the very force of association, make the light and wisdom and power of God his own, weaving those bright rays into a chain divine linking himself forever to God and to God to him. This is the sum of Messiah's mystic words, Thou Father in me and I in thee, beyond this human greatness cannot achieve. Hmm. As I thought about that, walking in light and how our light becomes his light, and then as we reach out and say, come and see, you know, we've talked about that before, that people come and see through our lives the light that God can give them as well. Yes, and I love how they said, let your light so shine so that people may see your good works Exactly. and glorify God. It's not, look how good I am, look at right. my light, right. look at how well I can live the gospel. It's look at how God is so caring and loving and majestic and blesses us all through the light. Well, it's like the 12-step process that we were talking right. about. I mean, that's basically what we're, we're saying here is that I, I acknowledge the fact that it's not me. It's not because of me that I have gained right. this light, but it's because I have followed his light that this has become the way I live. And I do have to say, if you haven't seen someone in a while or someone has joined the church and then you spend a couple of years and you go away and then you suddenly see them again and you can see the increased light and the change in their lives. And you're just like, wow, the gospel yeah. works when people really work changes. it. Oh, <laughs> so. yeah. No, it really, really, really changes things. Well, that's a perfect way, segue into becoming perfect. Uh, you know, I am. Um, what is perfection? <laughs> so we know that in in the book, it talks about how Russell M. Nelson said that word perfect is from the word. And I did your thing where I went and listened to a YouTube video that said this Greek word. Okay, and good. it's teleos yes. is the way they said. So teleos means to reach a distant end or to be fully developed. And the struggle with be therefore perfect. Well, I wanted to start before that. You know, when you tell this is way off the beaten path, I'm a tangent woman, so it just happens. <laughs> but um, when you tell bedtime stories to your children and you've told the same stories over and over again, and then your youngest is like, I've never heard this story before. And you're like, yes, you have. I've told it a million times, but you've never told it to that one child. Hmm, yeah. Oh, I so completely relate. When that. I was talking about be therefore perfect, I was talking to... Um, one of my children and I said, oh, everyone knows that in the Book of Mormon, well, here he says, be therefore perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Right. 
And then in the Book of Mormon, he says, be therefore perfect as I or your Father in heaven is perfect, because Christ himself, though sinless, wasn't perfect until after his resurrection. Right. And my son's like, what? I've never heard that before. And you're like, what? So, um, so that was a surprise. But I think that even though we can see that in the scriptures, that Christ himself wasn't perfect, sometimes we expect that perfection from us when right. we're made perfect through Christ. Right. And just like what we said before with the Beatitudes, that as we see those deficits and turn to Christ, he'll inspire us. And sometimes it's not in ways that we would expect. We want it to be ways that would keep our lives so orderly and beautiful. And sometimes it's by giving us a huge difficulty or trial. Um, I know that we live in a very not terrestrial world. And you think of Terra and this is the earth, but we actually live in a telestial world with an L, which is just below that. And that we have these concepts when we read the scriptures and pray, we feel that celestial light. And then we open our eyes and are surrounded by the dog chewing a stuffed animal and leaving stuffing everywhere. And you're yeah, just like, ah, where's the beauty? Where's the perfection? But that, um, that distance was um, written. Our mother wrote a poem called An Unfinished Woman, which oh, kind of played... Favorite. Oh, is it? I, I just love this poem. Yes. Which played with yes. that idea of, of the perfection mm. versus the imperfect, the reality the of our, of our lives. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to see if I can do it without looking down very much. I've been working on it. So we'll see. I can't, uh, I can't read it without crying. So I'm just, I'm impressed oh, that you're going to do it. If you practice, well, now I'm going to do it. All right. No, 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 I'm sorry for saying that. I'm sorry okay. for saying that. Here I am, Lord. The dish is barely done. And night long since fallen, and the children will not go to bed, and will not go, and will not go. And now they're gone, gone to places of their own with children of their own who will not go, and will not go. And I remain not half spent. I remain not yet content. My past mistakes like stepping stones, not millstones great around my neck, but stones that guide my searching feet, and search I must. I'm incomplete. I watch my years go tumbling by. I must use them better. I have so much to learn and do before I would return to you. Ah, what wisdom thou gavest, mortal life, as daughter, sister, mother, wife. In earthly roles, I've seen thy face. In my womanly life, Thy heavenly place is taught through humble tasks and pain. So, if royal robes I would obtain to wear as all thy glories burst, I'll have to do the laundry first. I love it. I love so it. So good. <laughs> it's so good. It's so true. It's so I think and the laundry and the undone dishes are the and the constant. messy kitchen are the constant. Right. They are. And the children that will not go and will not go, go, whether yeah. it's it's true. You know, staying on the path that they've decided and you know what's inspired and they just aren't ready or, you know, the way as adult children where you're trying to help them, but they don't want your advice and you just have to love them through. Yeah. It's a hard, very, hard very Well, path. and I know, Julie, you are a writer. And yeah. as a writer, 
it's your is writing ever perfect? It's never perfect. I take a book and I write it and I go back and go back and go back over it. Then it goes to my editor and she goes over it. Then it goes to the copy editor and then they go over it. And then we all go over it again. And we just try to make it perfect until I hate it. I hate the book before it comes out. I'm like, I cannot look at this one more time. But then you have to. And then it's out there, and it's not perfect. Someone will always find a typo somewhere, <laughs> yeah, no matter how true. hard we that's try. True. And no matter how hard we try, someone is not going to like it. And I think it's important to remember that we don't have to be perfect, and we don't need other people to tell us that we're perfect, because no one, not everyone is going to like us. That's just the way the world is. So it's okay to be a little imperfect and to be trying. And if that person doesn't like you, then that is their problem. And you can still just love them like we already talked just about. Love them. And go on and live a happy, fulfilling life. Striving. Right. And I think, too, you have to love yourself. Yeah. And you have to love your book. There's a point where you come well, back. And I say, love it when I start. <laughs> and I love it when it's done. It's out. And, and it's, it's out, out in and the, the world. Process. And I'm like, you know what? I think this, this is, is a good, good book. This I is know. pretty good. This is a good book. And I so, love yeah, there's well, and just hopefully that middle ground that's always true. so troublesome. I, I hope that all of us can feel like, you know what? I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm doing a true. pretty good job. I'm trying, and the Lord, through the Lord's help, right? Through the Lord's through help, through the Lord's help, I can, I can do it. I've got this great quote by um, Jeffrey R. Holland. Let me see. Oh, here it is. And it says that um, when it comes to being perfect, that the Lord doesn't expect it to be a verbal hammer for battering us about our shortcomings. Oh, I right. love that. That's a, that's but instead, symbol. a tribute to who and what God is. And what he can achieve, what we can achieve together in eternity. And so instead, if we look at the great things the Lord has done in elevating us instead of how imperfect we are. Yeah. And so I think to look at ourselves as an incredible project, a miracle. Be ye therefore good. perfect eventually. <laughs> eventually. That was, that was where that, right, that's where that came from. Well, I just want to end our discussion today by, first of all, saying Thank you to you both well, for, for the, the wonderful words that you've given. But also to say, I am so grateful for the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm so looking forward to our continued discussion about living this higher law. Because that's also something that we have to do in order to obtain this completeness, this teleos that we talked about. And hopefully as we read and study these beautiful words, that that will be something that we can look forward to. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.